my ideal world is a world where you don't go into ridiculous debt for student loans, a world where economic inequality doesn't exist, a world where everyone has access to healthcare, everyone, and it's not controversial, an act where the government or outside forces dictating what people should do on a person-to-person level isn't enforced. I feel like that, that in a way, is like a peaceful anarchy, you know. But I feel like uh, more just a mutual respect for other cultures and ethnicities while also maintaining the pride that you have in your own. And, you know, for the complete and utter liberation of every gender and however anyone identifies in any way at the utmost level. I'm Kimberly Drew, and you're listening to Your Attention Please, a Hulu podcast with iHeartRadio. Today, I'm joined by Philip Eumanns, a promising young director. His film, Burning Cane, made him the first Black director to win the best U.S. narrative feature at the 2019 Tribeca Film Festival. Ava DuVernay's collective array picked up the film. And since then, Philip has gotten a ton of much-deserved recognition. After watching Philip's segment on Your Attention, Please, I was really excited to go back and watch Burning Cane. I think that when you see these moments of flares that pop up, especially from young aspiring voices, I feel really protective. But watching Burning Cane and seeing the incredible promise in almost every single frame of the film, I knew that that protective energy wasn't necessary. Philip has a very special gift. And I'm really excited to continue to follow his career. It's such an honor to be joined by Philip at such a nascent point in his career where there's so much ahead, but already so much that he's accomplished. He's so young, (laughs) which I hate to say, but at age 20, he's already accomplished some director's wildest dreams. So if he could have your attention, please. Our guest today, Philip Eumanns. So my background is mostly in visual arts. And I think a lot about how when artists are making the object, there's a surrender that happens where you hand it off. Yeah. But with the script, you're still living with it. But do you feel that release or what is the, what are the, like some of the emotions that come up? Well, it's interesting because I feel super, I feel confident in my, in my voice and in, in that kind of stuff. But I mean, you never feel like completely comfortable because I feel, I feel like, it's so sub like I learned. So I went to the Sundance Labs with the script, mm. um, and the Sundance Labs are amazing. Like I went in with an idea, and they tore it apart, mm. like in the best way possible. I thought I had an idea about what that movie was. The movie's called Magnolia Bloom. It's about the New Orleans Black Panthers, mm-hmm. um, and I went in there with an idea about what that movie was, and it verified a lot of my ideas about what that movie was to me, but also kind of just one expanded that, but. It was interesting. It was like the advisors were amazing, you know, they're mm. vets, but it also felt like all of that feedback, all of the conversations around the film were dictated by the screenwriter. Like it was more about me asking them what I wanted to get notes on as opposed to them coming out flat with here are our notes, you know, which I yeah. thought was very constructive. And it was also a period where we were really, really kind of motivated to embrace ourselves and our connections to the piece. I feel like as writers, Oftentimes we 
are aware of a lot of what we're writing, how, how, how much of that, how much of ourselves we can see in our writing. But oftentimes I feel like, at least in my case, in the past, I've tried to like push that away and make it less overt. Mm. In this case, it's like, why make it less overt? Like it's so, you are, you're the, you're the artist, you know what I mean? You're the creator of it. So I feel like that was also a dope perspective that I gained from the labs that really shaped the draft as it is now. So I feel confident about it, but I also feel scared, you know, nervous mm. and all that kind of stuff because uh, I made, the first feature I made, I made in shooting with a budget of ten to 15,000. Now this film is a period piece. I mean, we're going to need millions. Yeah. You know, so it's just, it's leveling up. It's it's nothing to complain about. I mean, I'm very, very excited, very fortunate. It's just new ground, you know, new territory. Yeah, that's wild to think about. I mean, even in general, as a person who's outsider looking in, like I go to watch movies yeah. <laughs> and thinking about the budget and scale and just the sheer number of people that come together to make something possible is kind of wild. Yeah. Um, how, when you, especially at this stage in your career, you have demonstrated so much promise as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a camera operator. There's a level of trust that I'm sure people have with your future right now. Um, I wonder how you maintain a level of vulnerability in those spaces, or is that even a goal of yours? Uh, I feel like I'm always vulnerable. I feel like I'm such a, an open book. Yeah, because I'm sure in some ways, especially when you're selling something, you have to go in with a certain level of bravado. Yo, yo, I was just <laughs> talking about this the other day. Like, I feel like as artists, like there's a certain amount of, of, I don't know if it's ego or narcissism or whatever it is, but you have to believe that what you want to say, the work that you're making is important enough for someone to listen to, mm -hmm. that your voice is important enough. That in itself takes a certain amount of self-confidence. But no, I just feel like there's a healthy amount of that that's really necessary to, to put anything out there or at least to be able to put it out there and stomach it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Whenever I look at artists and, or even you were saying being at the Sundance Labs, like people tearing it apart, like my soul is like, no! no <laughs> yeah, and that's why in notes, it's so hard to just sit down and just take it until I realize another thing with like any, with any film, like the process of getting notes, like when I first started getting them, I was so emotional about every little thing. I would mm. rebuttal, rebuttal, rebuttal. And it's like, it didn't, it just, it wasn't constructive yeah. until when I was doing uh, note sessions for Burning Cane, uh, my EP, Ben, he was like really, really motivated me to not say a single thing. Mm. Walk in there, just let people, you go around the room, everyone says their notes. I can't rebuttal them because at the end of the day, like it's not an argument, you know, they saw yeah. what they saw. They had, they had the feeling and the reaction to it that they had. Um, and it also makes it so much less awkward, you know, because it can get so uncomfortable when you're having an argument with somebody about notes for your own piece yeah. that you invited them to. Right. Like, uh, you're like, I want your opinion, but I yeah, don't but want your like, opinion. Yeah, I want your opinion, but you hurt my feelings now. So, <laughs> so let's deal with that. Yeah. Tell me about making the video for your attention, please. Okay. Or the so, film, I should say. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, well, so it's called Imagine a Moon Colony, uh, and it is about a kid named Henry Wade, uh, it's 1970. He asked his family uh, to imagine the year 2020 through a black lens. And so he creates, you know, abstract visuals, you know, based on his interpretation of their ideas, you know. And it was interesting because I knew initially I wanted to shoot that piece in only Super 8, but I realized the potential to like switch formats with Super 8 and Super 16 was such an interesting sort of, you know, idea proposition, you know, cause I've also been 
experimenting a lot recently with varying formats when it comes to shooting, mm. you know, especially in the documentary form as well. But I, I wanted to show a family living in affluence. I wanted to show, uh, you know, a mother and father who still had a lot of sexual energy and were still grabbing each other, making out still like just in a, just, just in a, I don't know, in a, in a more celebratory display of our blackness. You know what I mean? I felt like, especially from making a film like Burning Cane, and I've been talking to a lot of people about it recently. Like I'm not in the sort of, I guess, more, more, uh, I don't know. I was, I think my headspace back when I was making that film was a lot more bleak than it is today, mm. but I've noticed such a shift in the work that I've been making. It's, I mean, significantly happier now, just kind of objectively. I wonder for you um, if there is any way in which you feel protective over the stories that you're trying to tell or if you feel like, um, yeah, if there's a push to stretch beyond the things that feel true or real to you. Mm. I feel like it's becoming, I feel like my work over time is kind of evolving into becoming less and less overtly connected to me mm. or less and less where like Burning Cane, it's pretty spot. I mean, I grew up in that environment. I grew up in that state. I grew up in that sort of atmosphere, you know, the moon colony. It's, it's about the things that I kind of want to see the things that I'm feeling less so than looking at it as a direct one-to-one interpretation or representation of me and, all those kinds of things. I feel like it's really just kind of a natural evolution to wider conversation, maybe more universal conversations. I don't know if that's really the word, but I don't know. The, the separation grows a little bit. Yeah. It's such an interesting challenge, I feel like, for directors, especially marginalized folks, where there is that push for universality, you know, mm. that we don't, like other groups I just feel like don't have to go through. Mm. Um, you know, you look at, Ava DuVernay doing A Wrinkle in Time or Dee Rees doing the recent film that she did um, based on the Joan Didion novel. There's this almost like, okay, you were doing this stuff for mm. yourself and now like you have to do it for everyone else. Mm. Um, and I feel like, like that pressure, or I don't know if that, if, if that is something that's come across your desk and where you are in your career right now, um, but it is something that I feel consistently kind of frustrated by. Mm. Mm. But, I'll say this yeah. before I get into that conversation because it's an interesting conversation. Ava and D are brilliant, though. Like they, those are two powerhouses. Um, I think you know, for me, I can't speak about any other filmmaker, you know, because no one's path is wrong, you mm-hmm. know. No one's. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I feel like there's nothing wrong with really seizing the creative opportunities that are presented to you, whatever those may be. For me, I've just, I've always just only ever wanted to make things that I personally write and direct. Mm. That's just, that's just it, you know? And it's not the most necessarily lucrative route to go about it in any, in any respect. But it, for me, I just think about at the end of the day, I want, I want to be able to, 100% stand by everything that I make. So whatever allows me to have the most creative freedom, really, you know, at least for me, has always kind of been, you know, directly seen just the stuff that I create from the inception on. 
Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it is art and we're, we're having fun. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, also home mm-hmm. and location. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's always interesting to get opportunities to talk to artists who are from cities such as New Orleans or the Miamis or Detroit's where they're just so singular and also so mm. imaged. Mm. Um, but being able to be a voice from those spaces, I wonder how that, that impacts you. Yeah. I mean, New Orleans, uh, I think all of us, all of the artists that I know also from New Orleans, I feel like we're like a family, like, you know, John Batiste, Wendell Pierce, even, even though Ben Zeitlin isn't, from New Orleans, he's essentially a New Orleanian. Ben directed Beast of the Southern Wild and E.P. E. Burning Cane and he, his film, Wendy, just came out. Also, I just saw it last night. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a, I, he's a, to me, he's a legendary director already. Like, I'm all, I'm, I, I don't know. Yeah, BZ's really, really tight. Um, and I feel like New Orleans in itself creates that atmosphere in, the, in terms of like, you kind of feel like you're already like, it's like us against the world anyway, when you're down there. Because it can also feel very, very, very isolated sometimes in the best and honestly most challenging ways sometimes. Uh, but it's home, you know, and nothing's really ever going to replace that feeling of familiarity. Um, I feel like since I've been able to travel around with the film, I realize that I'm a more nomadic spirit you know, than, than, uh, than I ever really knew. But I think in terms of the stories that I'm, I'm, that I want to create, a lot of that really is still centered in that region, you know, centered in New Orleans. I know my next film for the most part is going to take place in New Orleans and, uh, it's just, it, 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 it's home. I, and I also feel like a pride and responsibility to, to shine not only a light back into New Orleans, but to pump some opportunity back into New Orleans, you know, to, uh, to have a native voice, you know, help elevate it even further into the spotlight, you know, because it, it is home, you know, even though I have such a interesting relationship with it, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but I also feel like, like I said, New Orleans makes me, makes you feel like you can go anywhere and it's, you're, you're set. Like, I feel like going to New York didn't feel like anything. Like it felt like easy breezy, you know, and I don't know why that is. I feel like that's something that I don't even know how to articulate. I just feel like you go into New Orleans and you don't, and you leave New Orleans for some reason feeling like everywhere else is a piece of cake. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. Oh, you're saying that it's like, it's more work? No, everything else is, I don't know what it is. Mm. See, I don't even know how to articulate it. I just know it's like a feeling of like, when I went to New York, it felt like, oh, I was from New Orleans. I can handle New York. Mm. You know? in the best way, but New Orleans isn't anything like to handle. Like it's still, it's a, it's a fun place to be and and to live. It's like, but it's just, for some reason, it just feels like, I don't know. I don't see, I don't even know how to articulate it. All I know is that's the feeling I get. Yeah. Yeah. Where are some of the spaces that you build for yourself or find for yourself in the moments of, of thinking, of creating, of ideating? Hmm. Usually playing, uh, instrumental music, whether that's like piano or jazz guitar, like West Montgomery stuff that when I'm writing helps me get into like, for some reason I just need some audio stimulation sometimes just to really get concentrated. But things with lyrics will often draw me out of that and I'll be like, start singing along to it. But instrumental music, I think changes that. 
I like to be in places with a lot of natural light, you know, and lighting has so much of an effect. Even the color of the walls have an effect on, on your mood in a space. You know, like I feel like this place makes you feel light. You know, you feel like there's so much light coming in. There's like a, a nude wood up here, a white over here, you know, LED lights. Or, uh, you know, I feel like uh, the environment of where I'm in has a really direct effect on how I'm feeling, how able I'm even feeling to to do something. It's interesting how in editing, oftentimes we edit in complete darkness, though. Yeah, it's so interesting how in writing you need so much light. Like, mm-hmm. And then in editing, you're, yeah, the contrast. Yeah. It's a solitary work as well, right? Like, you go from, like, this group of people everyone coming together and then in editing, I wonder like mm. also another non-film. I just imagine it's like uh, evil mastermind in a workshop and yeah, you're like yeah, cutting yeah. things together. It's also like, it's the beginning of editing. I feel like it's such a time where you're like, you're, you're riding a high cause you're like, Oh shit. We, we really shot this whole thing now. And then you're like reckoning with all the things that you, you thought. And of course the first wave, I think for everyone I know is like, whenever you get your footage back and you review it, you're always thinking like, I should have done bop. I should have done that. But then after a while, I think you start, you come to like an appreciation and understanding of what you have. Then you start, for me, I feel like that's always a part of getting into the mood and, and, and headspace and editing. But it's so interesting how the beginning and end are so solitary, but that bulk time in production is such a collaborative situation, you know? I wonder for you, and of course you're at the beginning of a really brilliant career, but I wonder if you're thinking about your legacy and how you're doing things, whether that be how you're building out your crews or how um, the projects that you're taking on. I wonder if you were to overhear someone speaking about you now, 10 years from now, if you're thinking about how, how, to, how you want to be perceived or the, or the kind of imprints that you want to leave. Yeah, I feel like I, I have moments where I think about that, but then it almost feels like restrictive to think about it in that way, you know, because it's something that I really can't control. I feel like the work that I do the best is always the stuff that I feel the most comfortable in, stuff that, you know, I feel like I have, you know, just a, just a, almost a visceral sort of attachment to, you know, and whatever my creative voice sort of dictates or whatever, whatever things I make, I feel like, I need to be comfortable with it myself at the end of the day more than anything else. I feel like it adds pressure that you don't need to have. There's like pressure already, you know. I feel like it's so case to case, project to project that like when I was a kid at NOCA, when we wrote down our goals, I wrote down that I wanted to be the greatest filmmaker of the 21st century. And I wrote that down, you know, at my high school. And I got clowned for that, you know. But I just, I, I wanted that to be true, or it, but it's so subjective. There's no way that could ever be crowned, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or that could ever be determined, but I wanted to, to have that in the back of my head the whole way through. Like feel like, I don't know, I don't know. I just, I, 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 think, uh, I think thinking about it, that sort of broad stroke long-term is everyone does it. You know, it's, it's human, yeah. you know. Um, but I don't feel like it's necessarily as productive as, it's just really following your gut, your instincts on a case-to-case level, you know, instead of thinking about how is this going to fit into the narrative of my career, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I, I run into so many conversations with people who are like a generation older 
And they're like, what's your five-year plan? Where are you going? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, yo, I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'm having for lunch. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yo, exactly. Um, that's really brilliant. And, 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 and too, you know, you were talking a little bit about it earlier, but working in community with people, working with people that you really love, I think is where those things are founded as well. Where it's like, you could be the greatest filmmaker of the 21st century just because you're the kindest. Like Word. there's many metrics of success. Exactly. So look, <laughs> it's open. Yeah. <laughs> For other people who are listening, um, I wonder what advice you have um, who, for someone who might feel like they're having a difficult time finding their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really beautiful to hear you speak with such confidence and such grace um, about bringing your visions to life. But I wonder if, if someone was listening and, and needed advice, what advice you'd offer? Um, I would say... Trust your gut, listen to feedback, verify feedback. Uh, in the same way that feedback checks a piece, don't always verbally, you know, articulate this, but think about where the feedback is coming from. Uh, but still look at feedback objectively because it's important to have people that tell you honest things and uh, don't hold back or just tell you what they think you want to hear. Uh, I also feel like rely on your friends if you're in a situation where you don't have a lot of resources and it doesn't seem like uh, there are a lot of things to grab onto to like assure you that production can follow through, the moment you sort of build a tribe of people, it all starts to feel so much more possible. Uh, so, and I feel like when you don't have a lot of money, you know, that's the only people that would be willing to do any of that kind of stuff oftentimes with you are friends. So that's a big thing I always say. Uh, and then... I feel like you have to just trust your gut and follow your instincts a hundred way, hundred percent of the way, because at the end of the day, we're only just looking for new, interesting perspectives with work. Just something that is a change an evolution, a deviation, you know? And I feel like the only way to be truly original is to follow your original feelings, you know, follow your gut, follow your instincts, all those kinds of things, you know? So, yeah, I feel like that. And also I say, for the first feature, make a story about something that you have personal experience with mm. or that you can directly speak about the connection of it to your life. I just feel like it take it make it answers all of the questions that you have. You know, if you feel like, oh, does this line sound right? Blah, 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 blah. If you know how it sounds, if you know how your grandma says it, then you know how uh, this mother in this scene would say it. You mm. know what I mean? Like it's, just helps everything. It makes it all so much more, so much simpler, I think. Oh, I love that advice. That's really sound. Yeah. Cause you're, you don't have to have that room for the inner saboteur. Yeah, it's like, it's like, how can you really go wrong when you know what this is really like? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who going to check me, boo? Exactly. <laughs> Not exactly. me because I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Yeah. I think oftentimes there's this incredible pressure that we all put on ourselves as creatives to be perfect out the gate. And it's really brilliant to hear you talk about those little moments of, of trust because that gets the thing to the finish line sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, trust, trust, trust in your own, in yourself, trust in your creative instincts as cliche as that kind of sounds, but it's so true. It's why those things stick though. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's a universal truth. That's why it's cliche. Yeah. I've been like clowning myself because I'm like, you sound like a Hallmark card. Yeah. But like, look, 
it doesn't lie. Yeah. yeah. This is the part of the show where we give Hulu subscribers the chance to ask questions after watching your episode of Your Attention Please, now streaming on Hulu. All right. Our first question is from Anand Rain from New York. What's your advice to people who are just learning how to do what you do? I'd say for me, a big thing that a lot of my shorts uh, were important for was just experimenting and trying new stuff. I think just, just definitely trying different techniques, trying different, just sort of, you know, I don't know, just I guess manifestations of the medium, you know. So I feel like early on that sort of helps define all, all, your own voice, you know. Because a lot of the shorts, everyone's first few projects are bad. Not bad, but like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But bad. Yeah, like, <laughs> like mine, the, my first maybe five shorts, like I'll never show anybody, you know. I mean, people have seen it, like my friends, but I never submitted any of those things, you know. It really didn't follow through with any festival submission until Burning Cane because everything else I just really couldn't stick by that much. Like I really kind of felt like I didn't put my all into a lot of that stuff early on. So I say put your all into everything and uh, experiment early on. Our next question is from Ayla from North Carolina. How do you balance your passion with self-care and spending time with those you love amongst all of the ways in which you're being pulled in different directions? Um, that is, uh, an uphill battle, you know, that is, uh, that's something that I'm still figuring out. I think, especially, you know, when it comes to like romantic things and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's, it's so, you you invest so much, you know, but you, I feel like the most important thing is always the work, you know, is always the films, you know. And that's something that I still have to, I'm still working on now, making sure that I'm really always being responsible with my time in terms of, yes, living, being a human being, but also making sure that I don't fall behind, you know? So it's, that's something that I think, I don't know if you ever really get the right combination for. I think like it's always something that we're trying to balance as artists of any medium, you know? And our last question is from Aaliyah in New York. Who are your mentors and how have those relationships given you access to resources and influenced your trajectories in your field? Mm. So Ben is one. I'd say Ava is definitely one. I love Ava. She's so, she's so, uh, she's so nice. I don't know. Like me and her have a good relationship. And uh, who else would I say? Isaac Webb, the, my professor at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, my media arts professor who, uh, he was the one who told me about making it a feature, you know, and, uh, I mean, I've learned so much from that dude. I ask him for career advice all the time, you know, just because I just respect his opinion on it, opinion on life, because it's always coming from, seems such like a clear headspace. Um, and then I'd say Wendell, you know, Wendell, uh, Wendell, I think, I just grew up a lot, you know, I think with working with Wendell and uh, just matured as a, as a professional, you know, um, and he and I are friends now and 
we're all, uh, I just think he, he's also such a student of the craft. I think he's a very, very inspiring, brilliant artist, you know? So I definitely consider him a mentor, someone I look up to in that way. Um, who else? Cause I know that there is. Hmm. I don't know if I'd say, I feel like mentor maybe in the same way. John is, John is also, it feels like such a bro, you know, but. Uh, John Batiste, who's a pianist, he's a band leader on the Colbert Show. Um, John went to the same high school that I went to, NOCA, and when I went to my move to New York, he like embraced me with open arms, and I started working with him. And he's also not only is he just un surreally talented, like I think he's like honestly like a prodigy. He is the literal sweetest human being the kindest dude in the world like when he walks into a room it just lights up like he's already he starts he's screaming he's like hey hey, hey. laughing like already just jabbing like roasting like just lighting it up you know he's such a special like literally just a, a person that you could never forget like it would be impossible to forget your interaction with him you know and john is also i just think he's 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 he approaches art in such a pure way. So does Ben, you know, so, so does really everybody that I spoke about. I think that's the through line that they all have such a, such a personal, pure connection with their art. I would love for you to speak for about two minutes, just about something that you're passionate about, something that's coming up. It can be whatever you want. This is your moment to sound off? Mm, uh, something I've been thinking a lot about recently, honestly. Um, of course, like everybody in the wake of Kobe's death is just our mortality as people, you know, and what that means to life in general and how it's important to be aware of that, but also not let it make you nihilistic and make you, you know, for, forget that, you know, Whatever meaning is out there is what meaning you're searching for, whatever meaning you prescribe to something, you know, but it doesn't make it meaningless, you know, but death and thinking about death in that sense can do that sometimes. I know after Kobe passed, I mean, I, I idolized that dude when I was a kid, you know, and I feel like so many of us did. So it just, it was just, it was different. It, I mean, I almost feel like death in closer proximity don't necessarily feel as grand in scope as those figures that we idolize, you know, but yeah, mortality had thinking about my mortality had me really in truth confronting a lot of my friendships, relationships that were in a way kind of, you know, on, on weird terms, just making sure that should anything happen, because it really could happen at any second, any time that everyone knows that, you know, it's all love and that we're always, we're always leaving with a good taste in each other's mouth. You know what I mean? I've been thinking about that. I've also been thinking about, you know, romance and how it's so hard to balance that in a career like this where you have to move around so much. And it feels like it's it's like the biggest things you need in, in, in a relationship is like communication, trust, all those kinds of things. And even if you have that, it's so difficult whenever you have to spend so much time apart. I know this is so morbid. <laughs> But that's what I've honestly been thinking about. Like, there's such a route. That's really what I've been thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I was in LA, I landed the day that 
it happened. It was so intense. Because I got to LAX, opened my phone, got a text message from my ex who I hadn't spoken to in months. And he's just like, yo, Kobe passed. It really hit me. Like he's, he's like not a super sports person, but like from LA, you yeah. know? So it's just all the ties, the parallels yeah. are so surreal. Yeah. Um, but being here, like staying downtown, passing the Staples Center, it's just like, yo, it's, yo, especially cause when you drove around everywhere, you said RIP, I saw RIP Kobe everywhere. And it was like, bruh, I know, I know he is. It just, it was almost like, it just, you couldn't do, you, you, it would be impossible to forget. Yeah. It was impossible. It, you couldn't, it sounds like you, you even want to move on, but you couldn't, no. you know, because the city was in mourning at such a grand level that it felt like death was just at every corner. Like yeah. think the thoughts of death were at every, and yeah, that's why his, there's, I don't know, at least in my lifetime, other deaths that have really had that same weight just on like a cultural level, you know? So yeah, rest in peace to Kobe Bryant, like, yeah. and his daughter. So so sad, you know, but it, I think it forced me and a lot of people I know to really consider life and to really find, re reassess it and find a new appreciation with life. Y'all, I had such a good time talking to Philip today. There is such a passion that is so evident in the way that he speaks, not only about the visuals that he's creating, but how he's creating them in community. There wasn't a point in today's conversation where he wasn't referencing someone in his journey and thinking about someone who at this stage in their career has so much pressure, I'm sure. Hearing about his community and the people who are in the trenches with him was really so inspiring. I think my favorite part of Philip's personality is how loving he is. It was really sweet because at no point did I ask Philip about romance, but it came up many, many times. And I appreciate you being really vulnerable in today's dialogue, but it was really super sweet um, to hear not only, you know, just thinking about the love of the craft, but the love of other people and trying to be really responsible about love. I, I mean, I'm only a few years older than Philip, but hearing him really parse through not only love, but responsibility in a way that is coming from such an abundant place um, was really sweet. I think the thing that inspired me the most um, in talking to Philip was the way in which he encouraged others to trust themselves. It was really refreshing to hear from Philip about the power of being self-referential in not a way that was self-congratulatory. There was no peacocking in it. It was really about using the things that you are coming to the table with to not only help you build the art that you're making, but also to have a trust-based relationship with the art that you're making. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Don't be afraid to find what you love, share it with the world, and scream from the mountaintop. Your attention, please. <laughs>